Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad you're with us here at First Christian Church today. Welcome to uh, those of you who are guests. Would you, would you take your Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 1? Maybe you have one in, in the pew rack in front of you, or in the, if you're in the East Auditorium, there's some people moving around with them. If you're in Lovington, welcome, and I know there are pew racks in the Bible there. Everybody who's online and worshiping online, there's a tab uh, on your computer screen where you can grab a hold of um, Acts chapter 1. And guess my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us today. And um, I want to see if this experience, uh, as we start here, if this might explain, uh, well, you're a follower of Jesus, and you want your friends and your family members to experience God's grace in their lives, just like you have, and you know you're supposed to occasionally, or um, you're supposed to tell them about Jesus, and these situations come up, these conversations, these moments where you go, well, I could really kind of give some words here that would be very helpful, but then there's that nod in the pit of your belly that says, well, yeah, but there's the old adage about being polite means never saying anything, talking about politics, money, or religion, right? And given the volatile nature of rhetoric these days, the last thing you want to do is get everybody all riled up. And so you sit there gently, quietly, absolutely certain that your quiet disposition is telling them all about God's grace. And then you walk away going, no, it didn't work. Didn't work. Is that you? It's me. Is that what God expects of us? Let's take a look at that in Acts chapter 1 today. In my former book we read, in my former book, Theophilus, so the guy who's writing is writing a book and he's going to give it to a fellow by the name of Theophilus. We have reason to believe that the fellow who's writing this book is the same man who wrote uh, the, the Gospel of Luke because if you look at the beginning of that biogra- biographical story of Jesus, that account, that begins Theophilus. This is what I learned about Jesus. So here's what we know. A fellow by the name of Luke comes to know Christ and becomes a follower of Jesus after Jesus' ministry has ended. And so he's a physician, more than likely, and he begins to say, I'd like to do an investigation of all that Jesus did. And so he goes and he interviews people, eyewitnesses and everything, and he writes a book, and we call it today, we call it the book of Luke. It's an account, one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' life. And so then, after he's done with that, big project. He says, well, I'll take on a second project. Namely, I'll tell Theophilus what happened after Jesus' ministry in the early church. So he's in my former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, so after the, resur- after the crucifixion resurrection, He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them for a period of 40 days, spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, they're gathered around, and he he gives them a a very interesting command. It says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gifts my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I didn't quite catch that at that point, because they're around him and they say, well... Are you going to, this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we going to overthrow the Romans? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But I will tell you this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So as we look at this passage, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 in a moment as well. A, A couple of observations. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus is speaking, for the most part, to people like you and me. Why do I say that? Well, this is after the resurrection. Post-resurrection, we would say. We live in a period that is post-resurrection. Jesus is speaking to his followers. These people have decided to follow Jesus as God's son. They've declared him to be humanity's saver, humanity's forgiver. They are all in. And I would suspect for the most part here today, all of us here today, uh, regardless of what auditorium you're in or online, for the most part, everybody is a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're not, We'd love to have a chat with you before the service ends or as the service ends to see if we could help you learn a little bit more about Jesus. So post-resurrection like us, followers of Jesus like us, and these followers of Jesus have a responsibility to go from Jerusalem to an ever-widening circle of witness. You could say Jerusalem is where they started, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We'd put it this way, Decatur, the Decatur community, to Illinois, to the United States, to the ends of the earth. So it's quite plain to me, this is us that Jesus is speaking to. And he's saying, okay, I want you to be my witnesses. Now you're going to have this business of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's it mean? Well, we're going to carry on with this focus of our sermon series on the work of the Holy Spirit. And last week we began with an understanding that I think is very important, that the scriptures make it very clear that when Jesus was on earth in ministry, At one point, he told his his disciples, you're not going to have to fend for yourselves when I leave. And we examined a scriptural passage in that regard where they're distraught. This is just days before he's about to die. And you're leaving us here? And he says, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another advocate, another comforter to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. You know him for he lives in you and will be in you. So I want you to know very clearly, these are the followers of Jesus. They've already given their lives to follow him, following him wherever that leads. It's going to lead to the crucifixion pretty quickly when we're reading this in John chapter 14. He says, the Holy Spirit was, is within you. But then the, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is sending in my name, will also do something else. He will teach you and remind you of everything that I've said to you. So what we're doing today is we're carrying on with this discussion acknowledging the Holy Spirit's work within us. But I'm, I'm like you. Okay, I've got the Holy Spirit within me, but how do I access that power of the Holy Spirit's work in a more potent way, in a greater way? Because if I'm supposed to be part of the witnessing group that goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Decatur, Illinois, the U.S., and the ends of the earth, in some ways... It'd be easier if you sent me to Timbuktu to tell those people about Jesus because they don't know me. Don't send me to the people I work with. Don't send me to my schoolmates. Don't send me to my family because they know how I live. I'd rather not because after we have the conversation in Timbuktu, I get to come home. Here, I get to have keep having the conversation, and I don't know if I'm... I need some help with that, right? So let's see how this plays out. Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jesus says, 
to wait. So they're waiting in Jerusalem, and when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So remember, Jesus has already said a few days beforehand, you've got the Holy Spirit within you, but now there's something else that's happening with the Holy Spirit. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, all these guys, these people, men and women, they're from Galilee. And if that's the case, how is it then that each of us hears, hears them talking in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in languages they've never learned. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what's this all about? What does this mean? Some of the people who were watching them said, well, they're drunk. They've had too much wine to drink. So here's the scene. Jesus has left. He's ascended into heaven. It's the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast day. It's seven weeks, basically seven weeks since Jesus' execution and resurrection. And Jerusalem still hasn't recovered. It was a horrific scene in Jerusalem at that moment when Jesus was executed. And it was common that um, in the ancient world, if you were Jewish, maybe scattered all throughout the Mediterranean, you know, there's no middle class where people have some money. You're poor or you're rich. Most people, most people are poor. And there's an expectation that if you're Jewish in the ancient world, at least once in your lifetime, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to go on a spiritual pilgrimage that's going to take months or weeks to get there because you're walking. And you're supposed to be in Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost at least once in your lifetime. So since they're seven weeks apart, it was common practice. People would come to Jerusalem for Passover. They'd stay seven weeks and then they'd be there for Pentecost. And so thus you have people, Jewish people and converts to Judaism, it says, from all over the Mediterranean in Jerusalem and this moment with the Holy Spirit comes along and that's why you see beginning in verse 9 all the various languages that, that they're hearing, they're hearing their own languages from home. And something odd has happened. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, long before people get drunk and the disciples are praying and there's suddenly this loud sound like a heavy wind. And the result is they praise God in these languages that they hadn't learned. And yet these other people who are on spiritual pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem, they understand. It's quite a scene, isn't it? It feels rather chaotic, in fact. And uh, look at the response. Peter wants to explain what's going on. Verse 14. Peter stood up with the 11. So there's probably a little over 100 people who were actually the, the, the disciples and gathered with the disciples. At this point, we know that Jesus, when, after he resurrected, he was seen by about 500 different people. But in this setting, there's a little more than 100 people, okay, plus the onlookers. And so Peter, as a representative of the original disciples, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully. 
these people, they're not drunk. You've been thinking that, but they're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And from there, Peter preaches a very, very short sermon. 26 verses long, if you look at it in the Bible there. And, and he gets to the end of the sermon, and look at the results. It says, Peter pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. I mean, and this would have been a big baptismal service because they had 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And it's a cool story. They go from a small church to a large church like that. 3,000 people getting baptized. And I suspect some of you would say, Wayne, wouldn't you like 3,000 people to come to Christ in one moment? Absolutely. Wouldn't you be like to be given the task of um, more baptisms? Absolutely. Well, Peter had 3,000 converts when he had a short sermon. Maybe you should remember that. <laughs> so based on all that we've examined today and last week, I think this is the question that comes up. John 14, we read earlier, says that Jesus says, the advocate's going to be right beside you. He's going to be living within you. And yet you have this other experience in Acts 2. And I guess the question I would ask is, Acts 2, the norm for anyone who claims to follow Jesus, is there a pattern here? After all, like most of us here today, these people are following Jesus. And yet they've learned this, they have this supernatural event take place and they speak in tongues. And I guess we should ask is, do people around here have a divine ability to praise God in a language they've never learned? And the answer is yes. Some here among us do praise God in a language we've never officially learned. It's called speaking in tongues, and I need to tell you, friends, it's very, very controversial. And churches have split over this matter. So if that's the case, and we say that we have some who speak in tongues in this church and some don't, how do we at First Christian Church handle, manage, and if you will, take care of this controversy. Maybe I could explain it this way. There are matters of life and faith and practice here at First Christian that we hold to very tightly. For example, beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what our church declares, that we believe the Bible is God's authoritative word for us in every life matter, fully inspired by God and errant in its original writings. And that's on our website. We came to that understanding back in the 1980s as we had all kinds of things to talk about and, and issues that were the culture and, and frankly, the Bible was bringing to us and we worked hard to understand what we believe and why. And we know that we, while we might have people in our congregation who worship with us who don't agree with that position, it is the congregation's official position. It's what I believe. It's my understanding. And there are other matters of faith that we hold to just as tightly as that. If you want to know what they are, go on the church's website, firstdecatur.org, F-I-R-S-T-Decatur.org, and look for, the, for our statement on faith. You'll get what those things are that we hold to very tightly. But there are other issues within, Christian, within the Christian world, you could say, that we approach with a more open hand, realizing that Christians have a variety of opinions, followers of Jesus Christ, devout people 
who might look at scripture and come up with some different responses on some of these topics. For example, can Christians drink alcohol? Some would say no, some would say yes. What about you're at the high school and you're watching somebody's game, family member's game, friend's game, and the cheerleaders come up to you and they say, will you buy a ticket in a 50-50 raffle? Can Christians gamble? I, I have faced this struggle when our kids were little or when our kids were in school. You know, you want to support the school and somebody says, will you give, a, will you, you know, put five bucks down on a 50-50 raffle? And I go, absolutely, because I'm supporting the school. But it always occurred, would occur to me, what if I win? And the preacher goes up and takes the proceeds from the gambling. How would that be? I mean, there are some in the church who would say, Wayne, go spend it, have a lovely time. Others would be mortified. I get it. What's the role of women in ministry? We hold very open-handed here. What about divorce and remarriage? We look at scripture and we say, there, there are, there's some open-handed things there. What about birth control? Now, there you go. There's an issue that divides Christians, right? I mean... There are devout Christians who would say there's only one form of birth control and I'm not going to get into it today because there are kids here. We'd say we hold those matters in the more open hand. And on this matter of what happened on the day of Pentecost, I'm aware that this matter is interpreted differently by Christians across, across a, ward, a, a wide spectrum. Some of them outside the church and probably some of them within our congregation. So I want to offer you my opinion to answer this question. Is Acts 2 the norm? Is it what we should expect or something like that? And I'll offer my opinion as best informed by scripture. And as I'm bringing this to you, I'm aware there are sincere, loyal, and honored members of our congregation who might say, I can't agree with you, Wayne. But in the context of congregational life, though, just because we don't all have the same agreement doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss and at least evaluate. And so within the context of unity and charity in mind, we're going to say, what, where might we land on this today? And I say with charity and unity because the scriptures very clearly say that it's good and pleasant when God's people live together in unity. And because it's there in unity that God's blessings are bestowed and, and we, we get to, it's, it's where we, it leads us to an understanding of doing life together, but not just now, but forevermore. So we're going to chat with open hands in unity um, about what I've discovered about this business of what happens in Acts 2 about speaking in tongues and the other so-called, here's some language some of you may be familiar with, the other so-called charismatic or Pentecostal gifts of the Spirit. Things like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy. What, this is what I've discovered. And I'm very careful in saying this is what I've discovered. This is not what, uh, what I'm prescribing. Does that make sense? And, and we'll see where we can go on this. Because it's obvious to me that something very unusual happened in Acts 2. This fledgling church changed from disciples who were basically cowering in fear before the Romans and the Jewish authorities. Oh, sure. By the time we get to Acts 2, they had lived through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But may I remind you that to live through the resurrection, they'd also lived through the crucifixion. And as they're waiting in Jerusalem, who among them would say, well, I'm willing to be crucified in order to get to the resurrection? They don't want that any more than you and I would. However, at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, they shift from waiting 
to telling and going. And you are in church today because their focus changed from waiting to telling. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses. And that's exactly what happened. They began telling the world. That word power is the root word in English that we have for dynamite. And the outcome of the Holy Spirit's arrival in the life of the Jerusalem church was particularly explosive. Power was demonstrated and Jesus' story went from that church in that time in that small little town, if you will, called Jerusalem. It went from that small place across the world and through time to our congregation in our time. And anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ today or anyone throughout history has been a follower of Jesus Christ, they became a follower of Jesus Christ because those disciples, those people in Jerusalem went from cowering to saying, we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, the early church operated in powerful ways with divine actions like they saw in Jesus' ministry. Last week we said that Jesus says, John 14, I'm leaving, but when the Holy Spirit comes and you experience his power, anything that I've been doing, you will do also. So that early church, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they saw miracles, they saw healings. And I would suggest, friends, if we, as the church, as this congregation, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we see the same things? Shouldn't we be seeing miracles and healings? Shouldn't we see people delivered from evil? And shouldn't we expect profound teaching? Jesus taught, he said, you're gonna learn what I'm teaching you. And we should expect teaching like that. And what Jesus did in ministry, that should be this congregation's experience. In other words, whatever experience, whatever experience the power of God might have for us, I want it to be available to you and me. So how's that work? Well, as the early church grew, they, um, they began to see some patterns of how the work of the Holy Spirit would be demonstrated in their ministry. And they developed, if you will, a series of codified lists, a code of this and this and this. And um, the, the Bible has a number of these lists. The, the biblical writers use this language. They're called the gifts of the Spirit. And we have a variety of those gifts. I'm going to list, pardon me, I'm going to show you just a couple today. Romans chapter 12 says this. We have differing gifts according to the grace given to us. I want you to note this is grace. There's nothing you do to get these gifts. Grace is involved. Grace is something that God gives to you freely. Here's what some of the gifts might be. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's, to, if it's giving, then give generously. If, it is to lead, if it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. In other words, whatever God has placed in you through the work of the Holy Spirit, get after it. Here's another list. To one that is given through the Spirit. This is all through the Holy Spirit. A message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge. To another, of faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. In other words, all these attributes of Christian living are given through the work of the Holy Spirit. And some of you, I think some of us, would be inclined to say this. Well, fair enough. But aren't all these just kind of 
talents that you find in people? I mean, the ability to teach, isn't that just some people can teach? Well, it's true that each human, by virtue of being made in God's image, each male and female has talents. Theologians call that common grace. Namely, by virtue of being human, there are things that are spread throughout humanity. It, this is one way we would say it with a proverb. It rains on the just and the unjust. There's nothing you do to get the rain. You, if, if it's raining and you're more righteous than somebody else, they're not getting less rain than you get. It, so throughout humanity, by virtue of us being made in the image of God, there are talents within us. But these gifts of the Holy Spirit, they go beyond talent. In Christians' lives, the talents are enhanced by the Holy Spirit's power for the sake of what? Witness. It's not just so that you can be a good teacher or you can be a, a good giver. It's so that the witness of God can be displayed. Jesus said you'll have power on you when the Holy Spirit comes on you for witness' sake. See, friends, here's, here's where, where, where the rubber meets the road. If, if the church or our congregation simply relies on our talents then really we're no different than any other service organization in the community. We would, we would do nice things. We help people in situations. But as the church called First Christian Church, we want to go beyond that. You want to see transformation and change, if you will. You want to see things made different in the challenging matters within our culture. And if we rely simply on our talents, then I fear for our future. Why? Because we're suddenly dependent upon getting the right mix of people here and keeping them here. And it's all done in human strength. But we want to go beyond that. We want the supernatural Holy Spirit, dynamite power of God working in us and through us. As the recently deceased German preacher Reinhard Bonnke said, the less Holy Spirit we have, the more cake and coffee we need to keep the church going. Now, I'm glad we have the cafe. I'm thrilled that this weekend is back up and running and I see everybody wandering around with their mosaic cafe cough, uh, cups. Um, I'm glad we have better cake and coffee. Though you, I will tell you that not being a coffee drinker, if you see me walking around with a mosaic cafe cup, it's because it's got the nectar of the gods in it. They're going to serve this at the marriage feast of the Lamb, I think. <laughs> Along with fish and chips that have no cholesterol in them. <laughs> I'm glad we have the cafe, friends. But that ministry spot is only powerful if the Holy Spirit is engaged there in conversations, in meetings, and in care and hospitality. Because the last thing the city needs, in my opinion, if I say this gently in the right way, we don't need to be a coffee shop that's in competition with fine people who are operating coffee shops around our community. More power to them. We're not worried about coffee or cake. We're worried about people meeting Jesus Christ within the context of using that cafe as a vehicle for that. In other words, our church is only powerful if the Holy Spirit is engaged in us. And friend, you are only powerful, I'm only powerful in witness if the Holy Spirit is engaged in us and through us. So here's what I'm striving to say today, friends. We're blessed to have a talented bunch of people 
around here in this body of Christ called First Christian Church, Decatur, Illinois. We have talented leaders, both lay and staff. We have a deep well of worship leaders. I mean, some of you come in week to week and say, who's the musicians gonna be up on stage today in, in this room or the East Auditorium? And you go, man, First Christian Church is blessed to have lots of worship leaders. We have a core group of remarkable teachers. And we can together dream up all sorts of programs and ideas for our community. We have generous households that repeatedly, year after year, support those ideas and that ministry to the fullest ends. Our Serve Together team with literally hundreds upon hundreds, right at a thousand. It's our volunteer team. It's remarkable in both size and scope. We have a community profile that is the envy of many churches in the community. And we have wonderful cake, coffee, and even Diet Coke. <laughs> Great. All that is good. All that is wonderful. If we want to create another service organization that has a residence and has an address called North MacArthur Road. But that's not the goal. We are the congregation called First Christian Church, and it is unwise to solely rely on talent or ideas or programs or positional money or human leadership abilities. If our church's witness is to impact on, have an impact on this city or on our world, we must operate in the power and the dynamite power of Jesus, of Jesus Christ found in the Holy Spirit. That includes, friends, in my opinion, some of the more supernatural gifts. We want and like talent around here. We're, you saw a bunch of kids here in the West Auditorium. We're trying to develop that talent. Absolutely. But we need more than talent. We need the Spirit of God. And if it's unwise for the church to act that way, it is also unwise for your personal witness to rely only on your talents or ideas or lifestyle or money or abilities. If your personal witness is going to have an impact upon your friends, upon your family members, or upon this world, you must operate in the power and in the dynamite work of the Holy Spirit. That includes some of the more supernatural gifts. So that when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table next year, come November, and you're wondering, somebody brings up something, and you haven't seen those cousins for three years, and they say something, and you go, man, I wish I had some words right now. Do you know what? The scriptures say that there are people who have the divine word of knowledge or word of wisdom that they can speak right into that. It's not their talent. So that when we are people who are in those settings at work, at school, in the neighborhood, we will know what to say and what not to say. So what are we going to do about this in the coming days? How can this church, if I may, help you experience some more of the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, I suggest you pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to demonstrate his power in your life. Because who knows, Jesus' ministry might be more fully expressed through you in ways that are both surprising and more supernatural than you expected. What if God in infinite wisdom wants you to pray for someone and they get healed? What if God wants to bring supernatural words of wisdom and speaking in tongues and the interpretations of tongues through you. What if, what if God is expecting you to walk and minister in those giftings? Would you dare? So to that end, some homework for you. Read Acts 1 through 4 this week and ask this question. How was the Holy Spirit's power demonstrated supernaturally in those four chapters? If you read the first one and two, like this past week, what we were looking at, you're a leg up. One through four. How is the Holy Spirit's power demonstrated supernaturally? And as we are people who believe that God's word speaks to us and brings teaching to us, then the question must become, 
How is the Holy Spirit's power going to be demonstrated supernaturally in my life, in your life? And we're going to help you next week with some of this and, and some, some get you a little more handle on this, if you will. Next week, we're going to be examining the image of God within you, helping, helping you identify what traits the Holy Spirit has already placed in you. And so to, do, to that end, we're going to have some assessment tools and some inventories and material available next weekend. Be ready for that. And then also next weekend, February 23rd, on the Sunday afternoon at 4.30, we're going to be gathering those who want here in the West Auditorium and asking the Holy Spirit to actively impart and give people some supernatural gifts. And I'll be here along with some other leaders of the church, and we're going to take some time just to explain how that goes and how the, some of these supernatural gifts are used. And I, I know some of you here saying, man, this is all new, and I don't know what to expect. Well, it's, it's crazy, Wade. Are we going to swing from the chandeliers? No, I don't think so. They're way too high. Think about it this way. Do you know what Christians, Christians believe the most crazy things? We believe Jesus came to this earth through a virgin. Is that not so what? In the natural, right? But if we can believe that sort of thing, that God supernaturally works that way, nobody ever questions that in Christian faith per se. You know what I mean? They say, this is the way it is. If we're bold enough and have enough faith to believe that, then why shouldn't we believe that, by golly, God might do something through us as well? We're not Mary. I'm not suggesting that. But if Jesus Christ came that way, and then he said, the Holy Spirit's going to show up and is going to help you do things that continue my ministry, then shouldn't we avail ourselves of that? So, see what happens in the next few weeks. If you're a student in student life or part of our team over there, um, we'll be in that space later in the afternoon to, to kind of have you some thoughts, give you some thoughts on this as well. Here's what we're going to do. We'll just pray and see what happens. Not without some guidelines, not without some guardrails or bumpers along the way, but we're going to see what God does because I'm quite clear that God's way smarter than I am. And you know what else? He's way smarter than you too. I figured that out too. Let's pray together. Father, um, as, as followers of Christ, we believe a lot of things that non-followers would say is crazy. We believe Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe he came and he actually died and... By his sacrificial death, our sins are forgiven. We believe he rose from the dead. We believe the Holy Spirit came in a, some unusual way in Acts 2. And we get all of that, but then sometimes we just go, well, but that was all then. Well, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our willingness to listen to you and to um, step into some new ways. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't yet know what it means to walk with Christ and to have the Holy Spirit within them, calling them into um, a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that that calling would re include a reminder of the sinfulness of each of us. Anything we get from you, Lord, is simply a grace gift. 
So, um, in light of the salvation we've received and maybe someone's receiving right now, we'll, we'll step into some new ideas or perhaps some new ways and see what you want to do within us. Uh, Lord, we don't want to prescribe. I guess that's it, God. Most of all, I, it's not up to me or any of us here to say this is what has to happen. Instead, God, we'll see what you do in our lives. And uh, for that, we'll be thankful that you always do work within us and through us for the sake of this community and our world. In Jesus' name.